Well, um, welcome everybody to this Edinburgh International Book Festival event. I'm Ramona Koval from the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And it's my great pleasure today to be introducing you to novelist, short story writer, essayist, newspaper commentator and stand-up comedian A.L. Kennedy, whose wonderful writing has found her readers all over the world and accolades from those who know what's what in literature. And whose new novel is called Day, which is the name, Alfred Day to be precise, of a Second World War tail gunner and prisoner of war who in 1949 becomes an extra in a war film and through his experiences on the film as a prisoner of war on the film um, has flashbacks to his time as a prisoner and, and through this tells us the story of his life. To begin tonight we have the great pleasure of hearing Alison reading from Day and then we'll talk a bit and then you'll get a chance to ask her some things too. But first please welcome A.L. Kennedy back to the Edinburgh Book Festival. Hello. Uh, Ed, I, I may do something to my hair that reveals the sort of duck egg bruise that I've got on my forehead. Because um, I had a day off today from doing the other job that I'm doing, and I was so excited that I banged my head into a cabinet at home. Uh, so I'm in intense pain just now, but that's fine. Uh, who's already read this? Yeah. Ooh. Okay. Distressingly few of you. Um, <laughs> she gave a really good explanation, which is better than the, any explanation that I've managed to come up with for the last three years, so I'm just going to go with that, really. Um, and just read you, it's, it's a book with about all kinds of odds and ends, um, what with it being the Second World War, and that's quite big. Um, so kind of got rid of all of the plot that I hadn't used in the other ten books. Um, <laughs> So I'll just do, you know, obviously the, the, the stuff about him and his crew and the stuff about Bomber Command and there's this sort of romance thing running through. So I'll just sort of do little bits with him and his crew and one particular crew member and a little bit of him with his, his, his lady person. And uh, just a sort of finale bit, which is kind of certainly the last time I'll be reading from this book here. Because um, back to short stories, really, next time. Um, so this is um, this character called Pluckrose, who's very um, tall, his principal characteristic, who is also um, on the crew. Uh, British crews, they used to sort of self-select. They would just put a whole load of people in a shed and say, you know, find a captain and a gunner and a mid-upper gunner and a navigator and, you know, make the family that you would feel happy with, which kind of, I think, was a really good idea. The, the Americans kind of told people who they should be with. But this is right at the beginning where they're, they're finding people and um, Alfred, who's our little guy, has found his, his captain, has selected him, and they're looking for a, for a navigator um, and a bomb aimer. Um, and they've sort of gone away and come back and Alfred has found a navigator and the skipper hasn't found a bomb aimer. So there we go. When you bring in Pluckrose again, there's a shake of the hand and you notice how the skipper moves, that he's gentle, precise, and you might mistake him for being not much of a man, but really there is just no waste about him. He puts himself exactly where he chooses and is still. If he hits you, he would do it very quickly and very well. No bomb aimer yet, sorry boss. Skip shrugs at you, enjoying that he's rueful. Couldn't find anybody quite right. 
Who's this? Pluckrose in and explaining before you can answer, which isn't a shock. Pluckrose! From a long line of Pluckroses, my father, my grandfather, and my so forth, all of them Pluckroses to a man. And my mother, of course, picked it, plucked it, <laughs> although possibly under the influence of drink. And so, having put up with it themselves, they were delighted they could pass it on to me. He doesn't appear to breathe. Those of them still living, the others might well have been less enthusiastic, although who knows? Once a pluck rose, I'd suppose always a pluck rose. And the skipper watches him, unreadable and still, and you wonder if you've made a terrible mistake in bringing him a pluck rose. <laughs> you can imagine how much I look forward to meeting strangers, especially popsies, and my, how I like my school, all eight of them. I really have no education to speak of, can barely add up so I wouldn't rely on my calculation at any point. Geometry's foreign land to me. And foreign lands, of course, they're foreign land to me too. <laughs> Stuart McCallum Pluckrose, that's a complete set of luggage, the very tiniest touch of Scotland there on my mother's side. Pluckrose blinks down at the skipper, allows a moment of remarkable silence. Would you like to see my logbook? Offering this before he's asked, his face fighting between resignation and a peculiar kind of glee, and the skipper studying each page very calmly, closing it, softly handing it back. Well, nobody said you're dangerous. <laughs> I can be very plausible if I have to, which might come in handy. Procro's exhaling seeming to lower by half an inch and no longer close to bellowing. I'd hoped it might. Peter Gibbs, Sandy. The skipper rubs his neck, glances at his navigator, which is Pluckrose, and then at his tail gunner, which is you, and then the hangar where more knots are forming, pairs and teams of men gaining definition. This is only a guess, you know. He murmurs just loud enough for the pair of you, his crew. But I think we might take a bit of getting used to. So perhaps from now on, we should travel en masse formate in a nice little vic and introduce ourselves together. Then they can take us or leave us in one go. Uh, so that's uh, a little bit of the crew, and then they eventually, obviously I couldn't do a whole lot of plot and actually make it a chronological kind of linear plot, because that would just be far too readable. Um, <laughs> so uh, this poor man in America at the moment trying to make it linear. <laughs> It's taken about a year, he still isn't there. Um, never mind. Uh, it'll be a great film. Um, make no sense at all. So this is, this is the crew, they're, they now are the crew together, and they're kind of at the point where they're nearly operational, but not quite, which is sort of quite tense for them. But, and they've been practicing and doing all the things that you can do before you uh, actually have to do the real thing. So they're there. Um, there's Pluckrose, there's a, a, a token Irish person called Malloy. Um, central and much loved Irish person um, to represent this token Canadian person You're trying to get in, represent all the people who are there um, and I think you don't have to know about anybody else not really um, so a little bit about I suppose bombing sense of humour really, Air Force sense of humour which I quite liked um, so they're in, the, they're in the Duck's Head, which is their pub, which will become explained quite quickly. Um, they're in the Duck's Head. 
always in the duck's head. The crew, at least Pluckrose, had decided whichever pub they chose to be their own would always be the duck's head. The duck's head Boston, the duck's head Piccadilly. This way we'll always know just where we are. Yes. Malloy nodded as if this was maths or philosophy. We'll always know we're in the duck's head. Good man yourself. He surveyed their fourth or fifth pub of that name with proprietorial admiration. Better than a bottle party, you never know where you are with them. Fast girls, hotter than incendiaries, more harmful. Thank you for sparing me that trouble, my good old pal. The least I could do. And remember, a bird in the strand isn't worth two in Shepherd's Bush. <laughs> Very old joke. They gave each other the sign for victory with some inaccuracy. Thank you for being old enough to remember that. As they did, Alfred stretched up to meet the idea of himself standing, which seemed a little slower than it had been at seven this evening. I'll get the same. The faces crammed at the table nodded to him and he wound off through the model of civilians, a couple of brown jobs over by themselves, and blue and blue and blue. Old blue. Men who'd finished with the preparation, who'd fired at drogues, who'd done their fighter affiliation, their cross-country exercises, who'd flown out with other crew, old hands, to learn the ropes, maybe had that childish fluster at the thought of separation. Men who were on ops now, already working at the job, they were doing it, weren't still waiting, weren't unsure. Alfred and his crew were almost there, but almost there was nowhere. Surprised myself. How'd you do that then? A pair of sergeants leaning into each other at the bar, hands slapping down slowly on a thin puddle of beer across the counter, palm over palm as they spoke, peering close at each other's faces. Oxygen mask fell out of the hat at 20,000 feet. So? Was wearing it at the time. <laughs> they didn't laugh, only ground on, hands dipping and then rising off the bar top. Fall won't hurt you. Have my guarantee, air's the softiest, bounciest stuff you'll meet. And it's very thin, that high. That's right. The brown-haired sergeant rubbing at the black-haired sergeant's <coughs> neck, nodding and rubbing as if he couldn't stop. Just don't land. That's right. That's the only part that hurts. So don't you try it. That's right. Unless you've got to shoot. Ah, of course, you've got to shoot. This doesn't work. Take it back and complain. If it doesn't open, take it back to the girlie and complain. That's right. Alfred had never asked, never gone to someone who was aircrew and actually tried to find out what they knew, what they really knew, and here it seemed there might be an opportunity. Excuse me. If they thought he was a twerp, then at least they'd not remember in the morning. Excuse me, if you wouldn't mind. He'd sound soft, but that wouldn't matter. They blinked at him, mouths pursed. Wouldn't mind? What wouldn't we mind? They were watching a movement he couldn't see, something beyond him. Did we mind? Hands still folding in across each other, wet with spilled beer. Alfred cleared his throat. What's it? If you wouldn't mind, only one shape for the question. What's it like? Their eyes were pink, as if they'd been crying or were sick, as if when they looked at anything it would be sore. They both had the rash from their oxygen masks, that mark. Alfred waited. What's it like? Soft kid's question. And who are you? 
The black-haired sergeant suddenly more sober. Exactly. Day. Alfie Day. Says he's Alfie Day. Is he now? Is he? Wants to know what it's like, Dusty. What is it like then, Mog? Mog and Dusty leaned their foreheads right in to touch skin against skin and rolled the contact back and forth. It's bloody awful. What do you think? Dunno, Dusty. Let's find out. They broke off and faced him again, Alfred answering before they could say any more. I donunno, I, I didn't know. Why else would I ask? This makes them twitch before Mog begins gently. Know about the breakfast, do you? Operational breakfast? Real fresh eggs and bacon, maybe sausage, traditional. Traditional. Home you come, home from the sea. From the sky, Dusty. My mistake. <laughs> from the sky. And you get your eggs and bacon hot. Treat. Know why you get the eggs, do you? Alfred shook his head, and so they gave him their catechism. Penguins, which is to say all of the flying creatures, which is airmen, who do not or cannot fly, which is penguins. They sit at home while we go out and pay calls on the Hun, and they lay us the eggs to be ready for when we come back. They give Alfred time to nod, although he barely does. Tell me about the bacon, Mog. Ah, the bacon. Yes. Know why they feed us the bacon? And Alfred wants never to be like these men and never to wear their grey sweat, their weariness, but he knows that he will if he's lucky, if he lives, and this makes him giddy and too loud when he tells them. No! Softly does it, Sprague, or the Huns will hear, the snappers. Bacon, laddie. They feed us up on bacon because bacon is our meat. Wait till you catch it, or some bugger lands with a burning boy on board. Wait, and you'll understand. We're all just pork. Cook us up. We all smell the same. There we go. Ah, the fun of death at any moment. Um, right, uh, just to break the mood a bit, um, teeny tiny bit of Joyce, uh, he falls in love, he doesn't have an awful lot of time to do the being in love thing because of the being at war thing, um, so, uh, but he does fall in love with a very nice lady, um, who's unfortunately married to somebody else, uh, but he's away, so that's always a help. Um, so they, they meet in, a, in an air raid sh shelter, which is a terrible cliche, but, you know, lots of people were in air, air raid shelters a lot. And <laughs> they did meet a lot. <laughs> and from all the work that I did in elderly care facilities, the blackout was kind of quite a racy place to be. <laughs> uh, you know, terrible things happening, but also that, you know, we could be dead at any moment. Hello. Uh, <laughs> Probably just my granny, but you know. Um, <laughs> still wearing mini skirts at 80. Which is why I wear trousers. Uh, I have the family knees. Um, so, um, yeah, this is, they've, they've kind of met and she sort of decides that she doesn't want to be in the shelter because it's a bit kind of full of people that she doesn't know and she's kind of found a nice sergeant that she can go home with and she says, do you want to come home? Uh, but I'm married, so just, do you want to come home and be some kind of extraneous company for me? And because he's an idiot, he says, yeah, that would be a good impossible thing for me to do and uh, falls down that particular well. Um, so they're just kind of walking home 
and he's falling as they go. So they'd gone out beneath the edge of the passing raid, rushed out before anyone could stop them. He'd stumbled through the streets beside her, the moon apparently swollen, watching at its highest and very naked, very bright for them. The reek of fires as they went, the harsh, the sweet, the rotten. Another lesson war would teach you, the way there could be such variety in waste, the infinite variations of fire. They stepped across the head of a street, something leering at its end, a squat red fret and a bell sounding, a fire engine going somewhere and a whistle blown, three blasts. Funny how you heard the detail and not the guns anymore, not the hinkles, not the bombs. The larger noise of that more like a grip around you, a heaviness you moved through and learned to ignore unless it pressed too sharp, came down and bit you. A little dog ran past, upset, yipping and snapping, which made Joyce draw in her breath, and then what sounded like a shell fragment dropped down quite close, and she held his arm, and he let her, and they went on like that. Otherwise he might have said goodnight when they found her doorstep. He might have tried to. This is very decent of you. She struggles with the lock in her front door, while you look at nothing and her arms are pointlessly full and the glasses case drops again. Damn, blast. And there are tiny noises from her that make you think she's crying, so you rescue the case and follow her into the darkened hall of a house that smells expensive. Officer class. Mind, there are stairs. Something lost about her voice, and you don't know this dark, and so there is only her in it, and your idea of her, and your clinging on round the gold satin cover of a quilt, which she's given him to look after. Together you rise and turn with the curve of the staircase fumble your way. When they reach the second landing, she's easier with her keys and another door, but she pauses in the hallway beyond. <clears throat> Alfred hears himself a long way away, whispering, you didn't need to say, you know. Whispering to Joyce about being married, you never needed to say. I wouldn't do anything. Not because I was in your house, I only... I'm not... I wouldn't have done anything. I'm sorry. Well, I had to tell you. I'm sorry. Well, I think I had to tell you that. And she's most likely crying again, sounds like it, and hurries off up the passageway and he hears a clattering confusion, something heavy tipping over, but just waits, leans against the wall and puts his hand onto the paper, thinks he is touching her wall. There will always be this place where his hand was and he touched her house. He closes the front door and the dark becomes a little darker. He waits. I'm, I'm sorry her voice rather distant, calling. You should... Then a spill of light ahead and to the left, the shapes of little tables now along the corridor and a clock, door frames. Officer class. Do... Uh, do come in. For a diving moment he wonders what room she is in because different rooms have different meanings and this will be important and he wants and does not want to know what he will be supposed to do. I forget if I put up the blackout and then I... I mean, I must have done it this time because it was dark before I went out, but sometimes... <coughs> then he moves himself forward, lets her talk him forward. So I'm in this habit now, crashing about through the dark. I broke a vase yesterday, which Donald's mother liked especially. I'm not very good at this war. Maybe when they have another. <laughs> and there she is in an untidy kitchen. Not a bedroom or a parlour. A kitchen, sitting at the table, wearing her coat. Her head is dropped and her fringe hides her face. There are two nice cups and saucers set out and two plates, and that would be for her and for him. 
Her hand is holding a teaspoon, turning it over and over. There is no sugar bowl. There is a smell that is faint, but not clean, stale. Alfred blinks. Do you, would you, this quilt? Oh my goodness, I'm a BF, aren't I? She darts up, wet-eyed, and snatches away his bundle, almost runs to another room somewhere to his right. He thinks he might sit down, and after a while he does, and holds her teaspoon and turns it over and over. No sugar bowl, no milk. He hears when she steps back in, feels a line taut in his neck. There, that's... She pauses until he glances round. You're very kind. I don't think so. I think so, I think you're very kind. No. She's a little more collected, slower. He heard water running while she was gone and imagines that she must have washed her face. Carefully, she pours him cocoa from her thermos and takes out her sandwiches from the packet and puts them on the plates, two sandwiches each. Then she reconsiders and gives him three. Doesn't matter, because he can't eat them. Can barely sip the watery cocoa. Don't you want to be in your basement? Although the raid seems a good way east by this time, not their concern. I couldn't. I mean, sometimes I don't. I mean, they'll be my neighbours, and, and if you're here, I can leave. Which is his first lie to her? No. Which is when they look at each other. And there is nothing to be said. And Alfred sits and believes what he sees and allows himself to be in love. Cannot prevent himself being in love. Then quietly she turns the lamp out and takes the blackout down and they stand side by side and in the window Alfred watches the swipes and smears of war light, the way it searches, judders, bleeds. The night cracks and heals and cracks again while he feels it tremble, his own lost skin taken in with the shake of everything and he sees the little garden below them apparently undisturbed but made out of some dark metal, precisely engineered, mysterious. Um, I don't want to read for it for too long because you'll start to cry. Um, <laughs> and I hate it when audiences do that. Um, but I just want to do one little bit about Pluckrose and. Uh, I've got the mic, you can't stop me. Yeah. I haven't done a gig today, I've got extra energy. Um, so, yeah, this is another little bit about Pluckrose. Um, which will be fairly explanatory. They've been on a, a mission and something has not gone terribly well. What you remember is the smell of him, hot and something filthy about it. Out of the turret before you're down, as soon as you see the runway rear up close, you clatter through your set of doors, slide back, slam your elbow into something and try to see. Malloy there on his knees and tugging something ragged across the wing spar. Miles with his back to you, helping, and this red mess with them. No face. Stumbling up towards you along the fuselage, dragging this mess. Trying to reach the first aid kit as if anything could be done with it. And then all of you by the door, all of you, Torrington, Miles and you, are sitting, kneeling in the blood and doing nothing. Recognise the trousers, the shoes. Pluckrose no longer Pluckrose. You see without wanting to where they've hauled him and his pieces have come loose. Look at him once properly and even then you can't make out what's happened. A clotted hollow above his collar, a curve of bone and this glistening dark where he used to be, where he used to talk and look at you. And the one shoulder hangs and is ruined. And big pale hands, his two hands, but odd 
and messed with blood. He's all messed with blood. He messes you too. Hard to let go when the door is opened and they try to take him. These strangers try to take him. Take it. More pieces being lost. You don't like it, what he's turned into, but you don't want him to be with strangers. Then they put you in a wagon. A couple of sleepy corporals usher you up, keeping back. Miles, Malloy and you are all wrong with them on you and the others, even the Skip, they don't want to see. They sit at the opposite side. You notice, though, the way Pluckrose is on them, too. Their boots, their jacket hems, their trousers, because swinging over the wing spar, they've rubbed through what he left. Or they've walked in him, down the fuselage. He's marked them. So you're together, the six of you, messed. The wagon starts to pull you somewhere else when you don't want to go, not anywhere else. And Hansen, you're facing Hansen, who is now cleanest of the crew, and he gives you this queer smile and a cigarette, which you only hold because you don't smoke. And you don't want your hands near your mouth. And then he leans his head back and lets himself sing. You want to hurt him when he does. But then he stares at you again, and you sing also. And by the time the wagon stops and the corporals come to get you, your whole crew is singing. What's left of your whole crew is singing. Corny tune, a navy song. All over the place. Singing and laughing while the corporals swing down the back of the truck. Singing and laughing and grinning and holding each other. Grabbing at cloth and covered in them. And singing and singing while the corporals watch you. The crew that laughs. He's here for a day and then he's away. He's all over the place. In, in many ways, the war makes day, or I mean, he's made by his role in this crew. Um, he's, uh, he leaves the way he speaks behind, even. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is this is me and phone working? Yeah. There we go. Um, yeah, I've, al I've always found that this kind of uh, paradoxical thing that war kills people and damages people and makes them different in lots of very bad ways, but um, because we have a very poorly organised society, people very rarely reach their full potential unless they're very lucky. Um, whereas within a war, you may well. I mean, you, you'll be a hero in ways that you couldn't possibly imagine. Uh, you may also do terrible things you couldn't have imagined, but um, just the waste of people. We waste people when we aren't at war, and we waste people differently when we are at war. I, I, um, so I, yeah, I wanted to look at somebody who would, who would find war an opportunity, which is what um, war is looking for and what the army advertises for, is people who would feel um, that they'd like to learn to drive and ski. Uh, <laughs> and kill people, but mainly skiing. Um, <laughs> And he just, you know, he wants to be somewhere else, and it would be, you know, learn to be a boxer and maybe do well, or he's not really going to get anywhere near an education. Um, he's either going to work in his father's fish shop and smell of fish forever until he doesn't notice anymore, um, or go to the army and have a, a, a different kind of dysfunctional family. But he finds a role, doesn't he? He finds that um, being in this position as the tail gunner, 
Um, he's got something to do. It's an important thing to do, and he's in a sort of secret society. Yeah, and he, and he, you know, he, he loves his crew, and I mean, everything I've read about and people I've talked to, you know, you're with these six other people if you're in that particular configuration, and you go and you do something that nobody else can understand. Even people on the same mission don't have the same experience. You know, the weather might be different half an hour ahead, or completely different half an hour behind, or you have a lovely quiet run and somebody else has holes put in their plane. Um, and you go away for, you know, seven, eight, nine hours, uh, may or may not be in hell for a portion of it, and you come back and people are just waking up and having tea. So it's a, it's a very peculiar experience of, within the range of peculiar experiences of, of going away and being different. I mean, you know, it's weird enough going away on holiday. Uh, and having to explain it to people who weren't there. Uh, you must have some very weird holidays. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I started just thinking about it, because this guy, um, in the other place, a guy came back who, who used to work there last August, and he'd been in Spain for six months. And he had a wonderful time, and he'd been him in Spain. And he kept going on about all the stuff that he'd done in Spain, and, not, you know, we are not him, we've not been in Spain, and we truly didn't care <laughs> at all. And he was trying to be, but, but I'm a person who's been in Spain for six months, and I did interesting <laughs> things, and I've become culturally enriched, and I've done all this stuff, and I know all these things, and if I can't tell anybody, it doesn't exist. And that's like, you know, a tiny, tiny thing, as opposed to, I just killed thousands of people, <laughs> and bombed some docks and schools, and I have no idea what happened, and one of my best friends just got turned into hamburger, and I'm not even going to bother trying to tell you. How would I tell you? And the people I was there with don't want to listen to it because they were there. Um, how do you deal with that? So, I mean, how, how do you imagine what it's like to be on a bombing crew if you can't imagine what a Spanish holiday is like? I know. <laughs> um, and you do, and you do it so fantastically. And, I'm, and yeah. I, I guess I'm asking, I mean, how did you master the, the Air, Air Force sense of humour? Um, where do you go to find these things? Uh, I read, I read a lot of memoirs. I made a decision to actually not speak to people because it's like saying, you know, tell me about the worst bits of your life. I will go away, make money, not come back to you. Um, that didn't seem good. And there's, there's a lot in the public domain anyway. Uh, but I, I looked at Air Force training films. I was kind of building Alfred and thinking, well, if that's the training, then how would he react to that? Um, uh, I went and met a Browning 303 machine gun. Um, looked at the training manuals for that, looked at the training manuals for deflection shooting, which I couldn't understand sitting on the ground at rest. Um, you know, you're looking for a small dark object in the dark while you move, which you really shouldn't shoot at anyway because the tracer will point straight back at you. So if they didn't know where you were before, they really know where you are now. Um, but don't they, and, and this training of playing cricket in the dark? Well, I read this wonderful magazine that they had, the TM. Uh, it's this sort of in-house RAF magazine, which is very satirical. They, they I love the humour that comes out of being in hell and having to whistle in the dark. Uh, you know, there's a lot that came out of the First World War that way. You know, they talk about alternative comedy starting in the 50s and being to do with Beyond the Fringe, and it's, it's, you know, it, it, it didn't. It's to do with people having really alternative experiences. Uh, you know, like the First World War, story about the guy lying in the trenches and screaming and saying, I've lost my arm, I've lost my arm, and somebody immediately saying, no, you haven't, it's over there. Um, 
is a way to deal with that. Uh, it's not necessarily that you're callous, it's just it's, what else can you do? Um, so the, and the TM was, was, was kind of full of people dealing with that. They were, they were very bright. They allowed people to be sort of subversive within a structure. And there's also lots and lots of things, which you get now on blogs with uh, soldiers blogging to each other in, in Iraq or in Afghanistan, just saying, well, if you do this with your gun, it won't freeze. Or if you put greaseproof paper underneath the ejector opening, that, that, that gets you five degrees more. If you use this oil, just, you know, I'm trying not to die, and you're doing the same thing as me, and, you know, factually, out with the propaganda, probably we both are going to die, but if we both do this, maybe this will work. So there's a kind of strange ingenuity and love, and um, we have to get through this somehow, so laughing about it. So I just, I just read an awful lot and tried to imagine one specific person. That's all you can ever do, you know. I'm never going to write about somebody who's me, so it'll always be impossible. But I, you know, you only write about one other person at a time. I'm not writing about everybody in the in the Air Force ever. And from reading people's descriptions, as I say, of, of one particular raid, uh, everybody has a different idea of it, of course. And in a sense, I mean, the war made him so much that he can't um, he can't really be away from the war. And he decides to be an extra in this in this film, which is set yeah. in, a, in a camp like the one he'd been in. Yeah, and I'm, I met somebody in the street a couple of days ago who said, oh, I just read that book, it's really nice, mad idea. And it's like, that's a, that's a bit that's true. Uh, <laughs> when, when they filmed The Wooden Horse, the, the guys who are playing the extras, uh, the POWs in, in The Wooden Horse, they're, uh, quite a lot of them were former POWs who went back, and, I, and that, as part of where the book came from, was just me thinking, why on earth would you do that? Given that it was really, really horrible being there, particularly if you were there at the end, doing this kind of death march in the snow with everybody else doing their particular death march. Um, you know, why, why go back? But then, why not go back? Why not try and get back? If you feel something's taken yourself from you, how do you get that back? How do you fight something? So, you know, it's bad enough if, like, you're... <laughs> uncle felt your knee and you a bit out of kilter about it um, if, if something as monumental as a, as a conflict you know I mean just a, a wrong word with your mum that you regret for the rest of your life when you have to paper um, so he's just he's trying to, to, to reclaim things but plus having buried everything and of course you can't bury anything because everything is still alive and eventually it'll crawl back out and bite you um, and, it, and the thing is, he's, he's young. I mean, I kept forgetting he was young, but he is young because he started off, you know, like lots of people. By the time he's 25, he's just like this 90-year-old. Um, but he, he is still young. He does have his, his whole life ahead of him. And he's kind of done something brave. He is quite brave, mainly because I think he feels he's in a corner and he has no other choice ever than to be brave. But he says, all right, I'm going to come out swinging and I'm going to go back and sort of punch a POW camp until it gives me back my life. And he has this um, this attachment to Joyce, and 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 for a lot of the book, I wasn't really sure whether it was a fantasy of his, yeah. or, or whether whether she was actually just being kind, or um, whether he was just building this love up so much while he was in this terrible place so that he that you know she allowed him to have a reason to survive. 
but you're practical and forthright in Australia. I mean, if that had been a, like a... <laughs> what? What do you mean? We're, we're tentative about our relationships. We often don't know if we're in one or not, you know. <laughs> Part of the joy is that eternal awful doubt. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it, you know, it's very difficult. I mean, it's not written from her point of view, but I can sort of see her point of view, which would be, you know, my, my, my husband, who I don't really know, who I married partly in the hope of him dying, so I wouldn't have to deal with it, um, which lots of people did. Um, you know, he, he's in a Japanese prisoner of war camp, maybe, or he's dead, because, you know, they, they didn't know how awful it was, but they knew enough that it was not good, and she hadn't heard anything from him at all, so maybe he just died, maybe he wasn't even a prisoner, and now she's got to wait for another guy who's a POW, so she's obviously going to snap eventually and just say, look, I can't handle this, but I think, I mean, she genuinely does love him, and he genuinely loves her, but he just, he can't, he cannot think about it, he can't think of her existence separate from himself other than in spasms, because it just makes him mad. Well, Day says, um, infinity is fond of wars. They give it a way to come in. And um, I noticed you wore a peace sign badge the other day. Mm -hmm. You haven't got it on tonight, I know. Um, probably you, should, should be around my jacket. Yeah, there it is. Are you, are you a war writing about pacifist? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you have to understand something to know why you don't like it. Uh, and it's not, I think people misunderstand, like, um, you know, support our troops, don't oppose the war. It's like, well, I think supporting our troops probably would be opposing the war. Um, or, or if you don't like war, you don't respect the people who fight in it. I mean, people fight for so many different reasons and come to so many different decisions. Uh, and you can't say that they're not brave. You also can't say that the people who, who oppose war are not brave. Um, but, you know, that there are different ways of taking action. Um, and the ones that we're taught about tend to be that you do something violent. Um, you know, we, I learned about Winston Churchill when I was at school. I never learned about Gandhi. Um, I mean, anything about Gandhi. I didn't know he existed. We gave India its independence. India didn't take it. <laughs> I think we got that wrong. Uh, all I was taught about apartheid was uh, we, there was a photograph in a book about Africa, and there was, there was a staircase, and it, it had blanks and yet blanks above, and people were going up and down different sides of the staircase. And I mean, my school, we had a, an up staircase and a down staircase. <laughs> and I thought, well, it's just about, you know, the efficient movement of people there. <laughs> Why is there such a fuss? Um, you know, you, you, you can't help being brought up stupid. Um, <laughs> And, and hopefully then you find out and you do less harm. So he's writing this, this book um, about you making an argument for the, the kinds of ideas you have about war? No, I could, it couldn't be. Um, it would be anachronistic to even say... I actually couldn't say some of the things that people did say at the time because they would sound anachronistic. Actually, people were very, very savvy about what was happening. Um, but no, it has to be a book about a particular person who actually, you know, goes for it. He feels betrayed at the end, but I don't think he feels betrayed by war. I think he feels betrayed by his country because he's come back and he's bored and he's underused and there's still rationing and he's part of this huge body of men. I mean, and you look at the movies, you know, things like The League of Gentlemen. Um, that's such an angry movie. And, and it should be that they get away with it at the end. You know, it's like we've... 
we've fought for our country and we've kind of maybe got a slightly health service and other than that, hello, um, you know, we nearly died for you and now we're bored and underused and all of the skills we have are pointless and all of the honours that we have don't apply and everybody who stayed at home appears to be really well off. How did that work? Um, so it's kind of, you know, he's, he's, he's got that sort of response. I don't, I don't think he's really dealt with what happened to him in the RAF particularly or his relationship with that. But then his, his, his home life was so appalling, he's probably never going to get to it. The other thing I want to talk to you about was the sort of physicality and coordination of, mm. of the crew as a, as a kind of organism, almost. I think that probably would be how it works. Um, I've certainly done physical training with people and you begin to understand that. And I think any sensible crew, and from reading notes from gunners to other gunners, you're desperately trying to find out a way to do something impossible, which is to see a dark thing in a dark space in the dark while you move. Um, so, yeah, and I've, I've seen people who work together physically within a military context and without, and you, it's, you know, it's, it's very uh, beautiful to see, uh, you know, in a, an Eastern martial art thing, it would be harmonizing. You harmonize either with an opponent or out with. Um, so, yeah, they become a, a thing. And if you've ever been, I have been on a Lancaster, not a, a flying one, um, but a, a working one. It couldn't take off because it doesn't have a main spar. And they are, it's just a gorgeous aeroplane. I'm not a planey person at all, but they are beautiful. They sound beautiful, they look beautiful, they feel beautiful. If you sit in, if you sit in the tail gunner's seat, it is just, it just, it's, it just wants to go somewhere. It just so much wants to go somewhere. You just think they're going, oh yeah. <laughs> just fly. I mean, you could really, uh, like, you know, that famous poem, High Flight, um, that a, a fighter pilot wrote. You just, I hate flying. Uh, I, I ecologically hate it. The experience of flying now is awful. The experience of the airports is horrible. I don't know why anybody does it. Um, but you suddenly thought, I can sort of understand why somebody would want to fly. But you can't understand why someone would press the button. Yeah, I, 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 I hope that I could not, and I feel that I could not, but I can understand why somebody would. Every, everybody who was doing it thought it was necessary and were being told it was necessary, and were largely being told that they were bombing military targets, and, you know, if you wanted to go la 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 and think it was true and not think through, that's fine. You've got a great capacity to be, capacity to be sympathetic, to be empathetic to some very strange characters that um, other people might pass in the street without a, without a thought. No. It's uh, not a criticism. <laughs> it was said in an admiring tone. Right. <laughs> or maybe it's my accent. No, no, I just, I, I interpret everything as being critical. Because um, it should be. Um, I don't know. I always feel, feel quite peripheral myself. Uh, and I do kind of stare at people slightly too much. Uh, I'm interested in people that get ignored. Why? Because I get ignored. <laughs> Uh, in what sense do you get ignored? Oh, I'm invisible most of the time. Actually, I don't mind that. Um, I just, I think if you're not, 
Oh, this is going to sound terribly depressing. But if, if you're, if you're long-term not distracted by people being with you or being a couple or having your children and wondering if they're going to catch fire now, if you just sit by yourself for 41 years, um, you tend to look at people more. But uh, just terrible little tiny things happen to people and nobody sees them and you just think that's awful. Like, I, I remember working with somebody, and I mean, it's a very minor thing, but a lovely woman that I used to work in an office with and she, she found, and she was quite straight-laced. She's actually a very nice person, but she's quite straight-laced. She found a little false glasses and false nose and false moustache from somewhere. I think it was Christmas or something. Um, and she just put them on. And it looks as wonderful as it always does when somebody has false glasses and a false nose and a false moustache. And I sort of saw, but she was waiting for, some, for anybody to see, and she just waited too long. <laughs> and then it was awful, because it's like, either she's going to have to completely break my heart by taking them off again, or, or, or just, you can't wait for half an hour for somebody to notice that you're wearing a false nose. <laughs> But, but you noticed. I did, but... She, but do you not, didn't you say something? I did. I was kind of, wee, good false nose action. Um, <laughs> but then I would be bound to notice and, like, um, the false... You know, she, she just she, she wanted something from something else. I think it's when I, you see people just wanting little tiny things from other people and they just don't notice. Uh, that just is, There's always little tiny incidents of heartbreak. Uh, being alive is awfully hard. <laughs> There's no training given. Um, and I think pe people block out a lot, or they just... Uh, you know, it's like, like I was saying about my mum, you know, my mother's just moved house to a lovely village where everyone is very friendly and happy and they have a wicker man and <laughs> all the things that are traditional in the country. And she's just a different person because she stopped having to ignore 75% of the things that happened to her. Because um, 75% of the things that happened to her are now nice. Um, and you just, you know, so many people have to live like that because their job's a bit uncomfortable or the relationship's a bit disastrous, but if they're not in it, then where would they be? Or what about the world? And you just kind of, you see people just, you know, having to live in a shell so you don't go bonkers. But, um, you know, it would be nice if you didn't have to because it's kind of like agreeing to not really be alive in order to be able to survive a bit. It's not a very good deal. Um, and, of course, you know, and it's our job to sit and type a lot and watch. And, you know, it's not that we're uniquely sensitive and um, anything like that. But, I mean, you are kind of making yourself be, be awake all the time. Uh, but it means you notice other people sometimes not being, not being as happy as you should be. You should all be happy. Why wouldn't you be happy? Why would that not be the priority? So it's crazy. Well. <laughs> like well, I've ever been happy in my life, but you know, I'm assuming that it's a good thing. It's a good aim. Mm. It's a good aim. Let's have the house lights up now and um, see um, whether there's some questions in the audience here. And you have to wait until um, that lady up there, until you have the microphone under your nose. That's the only rule. Hello. Hello. Is it on? Yeah. Yeah. But speaking to it, that's the next oh. one. <laughs> um, I'm part of a book club, and we read Day before we came today. And the one question we wanted to ask you is, 
you said that you thought of Alfred first, and then with all your reading, you kept him in mind. But given that it's World War Two, and he's male, and he's in an from an abused household, and then he goes to the war, what made you choose that? <laughs> I mean, as a woman writer, to choose a World War Two veteran, male veteran, to tackle that. Uh, why not, really? It's because he's there. Um, to a certain extent, people do arrive. I mean, uh, he's, I, I woke up one morning and knew what he was called, and it was much clearer who he was just from the point where, you know, Alfie Day is a certain type of person. It's just kind of becomes predictive. Um, I find it much more interesting to be people who aren't anything like me. Not that he isn't. He's miserable and tormented and... <laughs> Grotesquely upset and unrequited, but um, <laughs> he's shorter than me. Uh, that's his curse. So, um, but no, I mean, it's, it's lovely to be, you know, it's a period that I always wanted to, to actually be alive in. Um, awful things happening, but I mean, lovely things as well. Uh, and I just, I, I grew up watching those movies and, and my grandparents loved that time because they were all spibs, criminals and black marketeers, so they adored it. <laughs> Uh, pigs in baby carriages and stolen parachutes and everything. Um, they had a great time because only one of them was, 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 was in a, a military service at all. Um, he had a terrible time, but you know. Uh, yeah, so it's just, it, it, it was nice to, uh, not even to do the reading because I'd done a lot of the reading. Um, you know, partly it was a sort of an intellectual and emotional thing to look at bombing because bombing just makes me demented and, and just the idea of area bombing and, the, and the, the, the magnificent obsession that you can bomb people into submission and win, win a war solely on bombing so you never have boots on the ground, um, which is this enormous mincer that we put countries through and we, we can, you know, uh, and I'm saying we, I mean we as human beings, um, not just Britain. Uh, so, you know, I wanted to look at bombing so it became obvious that it would be somebody who was in a bomber. Um, but I was fascinated by these people who are way out at the back in the cold and separated and seeing everything backwards. Um, uh, so it's a combination of lots, lots of interests. Uh, but c quite quickly it's as if you're doing something with somebody else and they kind of come with you. And it's quite, it's nice, it's a weird type of company. Actually makes you very, very bad at, at, at uh, friendships because you're used to people who, who manifest themselves immediately when they're needed. <laughs> uh, real people are not like that. Okay, another question. Come on, don't be shy. You're not getting out. Can we finish? Yes. Hi, um, we read um, Day at a book group as well, and um, one thing we wondered about was um, whether Alfred, especially in his sort of post-war state of mind, he reminded us a little of um, the character of J. Alfred Prufrock from the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. We just wondered whether by any chance your Alfred was inspired by that Alfred at all. I have to say not to my knowledge in any way. Okay, you're, thanks. You're obviously very literary and highbrow, <laughs> but... Very impressed. <laughs> I like that. I'm often given credit for, for doing things <laughs> like that, so I, I will now say that. <laughs> uh, 
to, to a French person who will interview me in, in that. They're always very good French interviews. No, I hadn't thought of that. Um, there's a twitchy hand there. Oh, where? Man scratching his ear. I'm not sure. Have you, you got your hand yeah, up? I'm oh, good. No, don't say anything yet. <laughs> well, I can. You're very stroppy, you must Hi. Uh, oh, God, it works. Um, I live in Lincolnshire, very near um, a former base that's now a museum. And I've been there. East so, sorry? East Cartbury, no. That's the one, yeah. yeah. Yeah, just outside Boston. And I've been there several times and chatted extensively to the two old guys that own it and run it Brothers, as yeah. the moral to their, their brother. Um, I went there once, and I won't make the same mistake again with uh, some German visitors, German <laughs> friends, um, who, who, you know, do, on the basis that they were interested in planes. Um, and we went there, and I was rhapsodising about the Lancaster and saying just the same things that I've just heard you saying, yeah. and how beautiful it is, and particularly yeah. going on about how whenever it flew over, whenever there was a flying day on anywhere near us, you'd hear it from miles away, and you could always tell it from the sound of the, the Merlin engines. Mm -hmm. And one of them said, yes, my grandmother was in Dresden, yeah, yeah. and the sound of Merlin engines means something different to them. Yeah. I just wonder if you feel that this is a story that has got some mileage in it, in it to go yet or, if, or do you think that as the years go by the compulsion to kind of revisit all that and to re-examine it will maybe dissipate a bit? I don't know, well I mean, uh, I mean I'm, I'm the first generation that's not really at all uh, touched by it, I mean my mother was a tiny bit alive during the war um, so I don't, I don't know if a, a generation who isn't touched by it will reassess it. Um, I don't know, if, if we continue to do appalling, stupid things, we're going to have to keep going back to find out why we did them and vaguely prevent ourselves from doing them again. Um, but we never seem to. It's the vast lesson of humanities. We never bloody learn, you know? It's why I love Doctor Who, because half the time I think, yes, we're monsters, and the other half I think, yes, we have potential. <laughs> um, but that's probably monstrous too. Um, but yeah, we make beautiful things that kill people. We make beautiful guns that kill people. Uh, to be fair now, I mean, Harriers are just really ugly. They're just meant to terrify. They just sit there looking as if they want to shoot you. And I don't find any poetry in that at all. Um, but yeah, if you were used to expecting them to come over with a cookie and knock the tiles off your house and then put incendiaries down and burn it with immense sufficiency, you're not going to be thinking, hmm, what a lovely plane. Uh, <laughs> But then you, if you get groups of veterans together from a specific war, from a specific, specific uh, common arena, then they have more in common than anybody else, um, which is kind of the hopeful thing. The terrible thing is that so many people come around and say, oh, you know, we shouldn't have done that, we shouldn't have done it that way, I don't know why I did that, why were we there? We have all this in common, but you, you, that's always a bit too late. It's like the 45 minutes to doom thing. Eventually people say, oh, it wasn't 45 minutes to doom. Sorry, it was about six weeks, or maybe a year, or it was the amount of time it took to take a pistol out was quite quick. It wasn't that they had nuclear weapons. Whoops. Well, we've invaded now. Um, we never seem to quite get it at the time when it would prevent us from doing something. Um, you have to live in hope, probably, or you'd go crazy. Uh, but yeah, you know, I'm, I'm glad that those places are there. I know there's kind of ambivalence. Uh, in Germany with things like restoring the Frauenkirche in Dresden because some, peop some people saw that as a thing of hope 
because there it is, you know, it's bombing this beautiful church and it's a kind of war crime. Um, and it makes it be alive again and they've restored and it's, it's as if it never happened. But then there was another sort of set of people saying, well, then it looks as if the war never happened and that's us expunging our guilt. But, um, you know, at least they have kind of moderately grown up media and they can discuss that now. Um, and we're kind of getting more and more. We were just discussing where the lovely British newspapers are going now and where all the news has gone. So I'm sure there are things happening out there, but if I read the papers, you'd never know. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you just have to keep trying. And there are, there are lots of ways forward and there are lots of established ways forward that people have looked at, but you know, as, as I was saying, they're not really talked about or discussed enough. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, lo I love East Kirkby and that, you know, that's a beautiful thing, you know. It's a memorial from two brothers to another brother who died. And it's a, it's a welcoming place and they're, they're so gentle and kind with returning veterans. Who just to be there and just to see the plane or just to hear the plane would be, you know, very, very freaked out sometimes. And they're just, they're lovely. It's a place where hurt people can come and, again, be with the thing that hurt them and maybe take something of themselves back. Um, and you, you, you go to somewhere like that and you think, you know, it's, it's, it's not just a celebration of militarism or, you know, it's a very, very complex thing. Um, and it's a beautiful thing and it's a place where people can come together and, um, yeah, get a bit of their self-respect back and their dignity back and, uh, yeah, it's the human creativity trying to burst through again. Yeah. Well, we've run out of time, but um, I'm going to take Alison next door to the signing tent. And if you just allow us to get um, through the doors and set up there, um, I'm sure if you have another question, she'll answer it as she signs your book, if you line up in an orderly fashion. But please thank her very much for being with us tonight. Alison Kennedy.